do, if you've got Bibles close to hand, turn with me to page 1168. And in the uh, service sheet you'll see an outline of the sermon as well. A few months ago we went on a day off to the Heights of Abraham uh, near Matlock. I don't know if you've been. Uh, It used to be a lead mining centre. Uh, But now it's a a tourist attraction where you can go down into the caverns on a tour. Uh, There's a few other things to do on the surface as well. Uh, Anyway, it's up on a hill. It's the heights of Abraham. Uh, And there's a footpath that winds its way up uh, that you can walk up. Uh, But the best bit, especially if you're three and a half, as Emma is, is that there's a cable car system that can take you all the way to the top. There's a photo of it on the handouts. And so you just go along to the bottom of the hill, step into one of the capsules and watch the view as it takes you to the top. The only thing is that as you look down, suspended 100 feet up in the air or whatever it is, you occasionally catch a glimpse of the pathway beneath, snaking its way up the mountain. And when Emma saw the path, she said, I want to walk that bit. And so I explained, uh, when it comes to climbing a mountain, either you take the cable car or you walk. Uh, But you can't do both. And if you want to walk part of the way, well, you're going to have to end up walking there all by yourself. Uh, If you want to get to the top by cable car, though, well, it's cable car alone that you need. Well, now in Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's grace is like a cable car because it does everything for us. It takes us from being God's enemies to being God's friends. It takes us from slavery to sin to adoption as God's children. It takes us from death to life. And it does it for free. In that sense, it's unlike most cable cars. Uh, There's no charge. Nothing we need to do. We just need to get on, uh, which is that we have to put our trust in Jesus Christ and in his death for us. That's his gospel. And the Galatians had accepted it. They'd got on the cable car. And yet now, like Emma, they were looking down at the pathway and saying, I want to walk on that bit. Now, false teachers had come in and they were attacking Paul, saying it wasn't enough to trust in Jesus. You had to do certain things as well, walk some of the way. Keep some of the Old Testament laws, especially they were saying Gentile Christians had to be circumcised and keep some other of the Jewish rituals. That's what made you a real Christian. And as well as attacking Paul's gospel, they also attacked Paul himself. Who's he, they were saying? He's not a real apostle. He's just taken some bits from what the the Jerusalem apostles, the original apostles were saying. And he's left out the stuff about circumcision and the laws you need to keep because he thought people would prefer it. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians to tell them not to be so stupid. If they start trying to do things uh, to keep certain laws to make them right with God, then they're going to have to walk the whole way. Only this mountain isn't like the heights of Abraham, which most of us could manage without any problems. No, it is unscalable. Just have a look at chapter 3 and verse 10. 
All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. This is a mountain that no one can climb. None of us can keep God's laws perfectly. We can't even manage it for a single day, let alone continue to do it for the whole of our lives. And so by listening to these false teachers, the Galatians were in danger of getting off their cable car and going straight back to being God's enemies in slavery and facing eternal death in hell. And so Paul writes to defend his gospel. We saw that last week as he highlighted the distinction between the true gospel and the false gospel, the wonder of the true gospel and the wickedness of the false gospel as it led people away. In our passage today, we see Paul defend himself to say, I am an apostle. My message isn't a distortion of what you'll hear in Jerusalem. It is God's word to you that you need to listen and obey. Now we'll look at that in a minute, but first I think we need to know why we should bother. After all, I take it you're like me in the, in the past week, indeed in the past decade, I have not had a single conversation with someone who tried to persuade me I needed to get circumcised to be a real Christian. No one has ever suggested that I should stop eating pork. Well, I was a vegetarian one time, but that was a a different story. Why then should this historic battle between Paul and some false teachers in Galatia be of interest to us? Well, let me give you three reasons. Uh, They're there on on the handout. Three areas of relevance for us today. Three ways in which the pressures that these Christians faced were actually very similar to the pressures we face today. And the first is the pressure to drift from the gospel. You see, in Paul's absence, uh, these Galatian Christians were being put under pressure to, to soften what they believed so that it fitted in better with uh, the culture around them, so that it was more acceptable. They were under pressure to make their faith less distinctive in the world so that they could get along happily with other faiths. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that the pressure you are under from friends and family, from from colleagues at work, from students on your course? My guess is that people are mostly happy with and supportive of the fact that you're a Christian, although I know that at times opposition can be fierce. But most people are happy enough as long as you don't take it too seriously. Oh, it's one thing to go to church on a Sunday, that's your business. But to start to talk to colleagues about Jesus Christ on a Tuesday morning coffee break is a different matter altogether. If you want to follow Jesus, that's fine. But to tell your Muslim friend, your Hindu colleague, your atheist father, that they need to follow him too, And you've stepped over the line. And so the pressure is to drift, to soften, to say, okay, what we believe isn't that important. After all, uh, eternity isn't at stake. Perhaps others, uh, they're happy for us to talk about Christianity and our relationship with God, 
as long as we don't follow it through into practical application. If a doctor is a Christian, that's fine. But if she won't perform abortions, she's a nuisance. If a school parent is a Christian, great. But if they start to express concerns about what's getting taught in assemblies or RE, well, then they're a busybody. Surely Christians don't need to take things so seriously. It's the pressure to drift from the gospel. The next pressure is the pressure to divide the gospel. You see, the Galatians were being told that they should ignore Paul and what he said and that they should listen instead to the other apostles. They were the ones with the true message from Jesus. Paul and his message wasn't to be trusted and so the Galatians had to divide what they heard rejecting Paul and accepting the rest. And sadly, 2,000 years later, you'll hear the same thing. Any Sunday magazine editorial or TV documentary will be quick to draw a distinction between the Christianity of Paul and the Christianity of Jesus. Everyone likes Jesus, don't they? He's the one who said things like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do not judge and you will not be judged. A bird in the hand is worth, oh, well, maybe not that one, Uh, woe to you who are hungry and well fed now for you will go hungry woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep oh well perhaps we'll forget about that one but he definitely said love your enemies but Paul well he's the one who's anti-gay isn't he he's the one who's anti-women isn't he no never mind what Paul wrote let's get back to Jesus or at least the bits of Jesus that we like Now let me warn you, there would be many who are preaching even now in churches across Sheffield who think that. And if you do watch those documentaries, if you do read those magazine articles, if you do sit through those sermons, uh, don't you feel under pressure? When everyone seems to be telling you that Paul's gospel is unreasonable and unchristian, doesn't it change the way you view what he wrote? The pressure to divide the gospel. And then finally, the pressure to define the gospel. Because the Galatians were being presented with two very different gospels. We saw that last week. Uh, One from Paul, one from these other teachers who'd come in. And so they had to choose whom they would believe, which gospel they would follow. But you see, the danger there is that the Galatians would begin to see themselves as having the authority to define what was right and what was wrong. They were the ones making the choice. Will it be Paul or the other teachers? Oh, it's up to me. If I don't like what one of them says, I'll have the other one. Now for us too, pick any aspect of the Gospel, any passage in the Bible, and with a bit of reading, you could find any number of different explanations and interpretations being presented to you. And then what do we do? And the pressure is that we think we decide what the Bible says. We decide what it means for us. We are the authority and not God. The Bible is no longer a book for us to study and obey. It becomes a menu from from which we choose something to our liking. We get to define the gospel. That's the third pressure. That then, I think, is the relevance of this ancient battle 
for our modern setting. Now on the handout on the back you'll see that we'll look again at those three pressures in a moment. But first let's see Paul's answer to these false teachers. His defence, both of his gospel and of himself as a true apostle. See, his first defence is that his gospel is independent. That's our verses in chapter 1. Have a look at verse 11 with me again. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. A Paul's gospel then is not invented by man, whether Paul or anyone else. It's not something man made up. Nor is it inherited from man. As Paul says, nor was I taught it. It isn't that he heard the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and then made a hash of it as he tried to copy it. No, Paul's gospel came from God. By revelation from Jesus Christ. It's his reference here to his conversion on the road to Damascus where he has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. It's well worth reading Acts 9 at some time if you're not familiar with it. So God revealed the gospel to Paul independent of the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, But then as we go on we see that Paul's proclamation of the gospel was independent of them as well. So verse 15... But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. See, once Paul was converted, he went straight off into Arabia preaching the gospel. He didn't stop off in Jerusalem along the way to ask the other apostles what he should be saying. When he eventually does visit them three years later, it's only for a couple of weeks, and he only sees two of them anyway. He was independent. That's his first defence. And then the next. It is that his gospel is indistinguishable from that of those in Jerusalem. That's what we see going on in chapter 2. Have a look at verse 1 there. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. You see, the crunch comes, verse 4, when some false brothers, false brothers, those claiming to be Christians but who actually were not, had infiltrated the group and were preaching legalism. This false gospel, the same issue that the Galatians are facing. And so Paul heads to Jerusalem so that he can sort it out. 
He even takes the uncircumcised Gentile convert Titus along with him as a case in point. And yet James, Peter and John, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, are in complete agreement with Paul. Of course Titus shouldn't be circumcised. We're saved by grace. Indeed, they add nothing to Paul's message. It's spot on. It's indistinguishable. In fact, next week we'll see that if anything, it was Paul who corrected them in the way they lived out their gospel. Paul's gospel is independent from and yet indistinguishable from the gospel preached by Peter, James and John. And the reason is that it's not Paul's gospel. It is God's gospel. It's the only explanation. Incidentally, it's the only explanation for you if you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you're looking into these things. How is it that people who had never met were suddenly preaching an identical message that we are saved by Jesus' death on the cross alone and there's nothing we can do to add to that work? Indeed, how is it that people, not just separated by geography, but by time, have all had the same message? The Bible is written by about 40 different authors spanning well over a thousand years and yet it all points to Jesus as the way that we can know God and have an ongoing relationship with God. The reason is that each of them knew that same God as Paul met him on that road to Damascus. God revealed his gospel to Paul. A revelation that, that turned Paul's life upside down so that in 123 we see the churches learn the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. This is a revelation in which Paul is appointed by God as an apostle and sent to the Gentiles to proclaim the good news of Christ. That then is Paul's defence. His gospel is independent, it is indistinguishable because it is God's gospel. So how then does it help us when we're under pressure? Well, these three areas again for application. First, against drifting. Against drifting, we need to remember that the gospel is independent. It doesn't get changed to fit in with what the prevailing culture wants to hear. In Paul's day, there wasn't a Jesus plus circumcision gospel for the Jews in Jerusalem and a Jesus without circumcision gospel for Gentiles in Galatia. No, there was one gospel for all. Well, so too today. We mustn't soften what we believe. We mustn't drift into gospels that our culture wants us to hear. For us, that might be the Jesus without the judgment gospel. Uh, for those who don't like talk of hell. It might be the Jesus without the ethics gospel for those unwilling to hear God's commands about sex or money or career. It might be the Jesus without uniqueness gospel for those who think all religions should get along fine. They're all valid ways to God. Now we need to be aware of those pressures from those around us, and stand up to them. It's very striking, chapter 2, verse 5, isn't it? 
we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. We need to draw a line around God's word and say, no, this is what is true. And it is true for everyone, whether you believe it or not. Sadly, we need to be aware that these pressures often come from within the church, from false brothers, as in this case. Uh, Those who seem to want to make the gospel less offensive, uh, more inclusive, but actually what they're doing is rejecting the gospel outright, uh, rejecting the cable car, and instead leading people on a walk into slavery. Now, instead of drifting from the gospel, the truth must be maintained. Instead of fudging the truth, we need to be crystal clear, both for ourselves and for those with whom we want to share our faith. Don't drift, because the gospel is independent of culture. And then next, against dividing. Against dividing the gospel, we need to remember that the gospel is indistinguishable. We're not to pit one book of the Bible against another. We're not to pick one person in the Bible over another. We're not to give extra weight to the words from the pen of Peter or the lips of Jesus or the letters of Paul because their message is the same. Now, of course, the different books in the Bible are written in different styles, four different contexts, with different emphases. We need to look at what's written so that we can see what those contexts are and then relate it to our world today. But I'm never to open my Bible and say, oh, well, I can see what it says, but it's just Paul speaking, and I know better than him. Because Paul is an apostle, sent by God, used by God, so that his words carry the authority of God. Because his gospel is God's gospel. We can't divide the Bible into the bits we'll believe and the bits we won't. The bits we'll follow and the bits we won't. No, it is all of it. God's word to us. And it has authority over us as a result. Don't divide it. It is indistinguishable. And then finally, against defining the gospel. Against defining the gospel, we need to remember that it's God's gospel. He defines it. We need to realise that the whole Bible comes to us with force. It has authority over us because it's God's words. And we are in God's world. So he is the arbiter of truth. He is the one who says whether or not we can know him and how. Unless you now envisage God as some sort of truth tyrant... Remember what sort of God he is. A God who loves his world. A world that rejects him and yet to which he is faithful. Sending his son to die so that we can be forgiven. Doing everything for us because he knows we can't do it ourselves. That's the God I want to know. And so I need to listen to and submit to what he says. I need to let him define the gospel because the alternative is not to know God at all. I don't know if you've seen the film The Stepwood Wives. 
either the 1975 original or the 2004 remake. It depicts a town in which the men have decided to turn their wives into robots. Uh, They look just like ordinary people, uh, but can now be programmed to do and say everything that the husband wants. Uh, A Stepford wife is totally uh, beautiful and compliant, but at the expense, of course, of any real personal relationship. Well, if we define the gospel for ourselves, all we are doing is producing a Stepford God. One who says exactly what we want him to say. Who never crosses us, never challenges us, certainly never commands us. Well, okay, you might think, but I don't do that. I I try to listen to what the Bible actually says and trust it and live by it. Well, great, but, but I think it's still possible to end up with a Stepford God. For instance, what actually goes on when we sit through a sermon? That's a bit different for me today, I know, because I'm preaching it, but when I'm listening to a sermon, this is the danger for me, that the sermon throws up all sorts of ideas and implications for my thinking or my life, and as I come away, I think to myself, Which of those implications shall I remember and put into practice? Which, of course, is just another way of saying, which of those implications shall I forget and do nothing about? You see, I filter what I hear. And if I do that, I can easily just take the bits I like, even if they're from the Bible. Jonathan, my son, is one and a half now, so we've stopped mushing up his food and we give him his meal on a a plate with a spoon. The problem is that even though we give him a balanced diet on his plate, given the chance, he'll just eat carrots. He doesn't... It's not that he throws the rest on the floor... Well, sometimes he does throw the rest on the floor, but mainly it's just that he, he goes for the carrots. We do the same with God's Word. We take the bits that we like. And so when we come to the Bible, we can always find the bit that we like. If we only ever take that, you're just eating spiritual carrots. You see it sometimes in small group studies. You see, it doesn't matter what the passage is, there's someone who always makes the same point. It's the same area of application. And perhaps it's really there in the passage. But everything else gets forgotten. Or here's another danger in small groups. Uh, where you reach a tricky verse and four different people chip in uh, with conflicting ideas about what it means and then you all say, oh, that's interesting, Uh, let's look at the next question. That's us defining the gospel. Saying, I'll work out what I think this verse means and if your definition is different to mine, then don't worry. But no, says Paul, We mustn't try to define the gospel for ourselves because because it's God's gospel. So, pressure. They were under it. So are we. They knew the gospel. So do we, I take it. They needed to stick with it. And so must we. This gospel of grace, of freedom, of Jesus doing everything for us to be saved. 
a gospel that is the same through all cultures and throughout history because it is God's word to us, even to us in Fullwood this evening. So let's pray together.